Hey, welcome back to Linkubator, the Linklaters podcast where we unpack the latest trends and themes in legal tech and innovation. As always, I'm your host, Hamza Zaveri, and today discussing AI with us, we have Neil Sahota, an IBM master inventor, United Nations AI expert, and professor at University of California, Irvine. He's also the author of Own the AI Revolution, Unlock Your Artificial Intelligence Strategy. Welcome to the show, Neil. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here and thanks for taking the time. I know that you've been busy during the beginning part of this year with your UN work. How's that going? Uh, it's, it's going well. We're actually trying to launch several initiatives around artificial intelligence and create a common platform for everyone to use and hopefully be able to create a positive social impact by giving some basic training and tools. That's really exciting. And from what I understand, you're originally from New York and you're currently based in California and you're joining us from Geneva right now, right? That's all correct. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I've done my research. (laughs) Okay, so um, I saw a really cool video of yours on LinkedIn recently where you're in New Zealand and there were loads of mountains behind you and you're talking about New Zealand protecting its culture. I thought that was great as well. Oh, thank you. They've done a fantastic job with protecting their culture and protecting their, their environment, the biodiversity. I mean, it's very pristine area. So if, if you've never been there, it's definitely a place I encourage people to visit, and just experience. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely on my bucket list. And we are also joined by Christian Stork, partner and global co-head of innovation at Linklaters, who is recording from the Frankfurt office. Welcome to the show, Christian. How are you doing? Thanks, and uh, thanks for having me. No problem. So to kick off, Neil, with AI being the buzzword and having all the hype around it at the moment, we can sometimes lose sight of what it really is. So for some of our listeners who might be less familiar, can you tell us about your take on what AI is and how it differs from machine learning? Sure, I'd be happy to, because I I know with all the hype, we have inflated expectations and AI isn't as magical as we like to think, especially from TV and movies. But basically, AI has like three pieces to it. One of them is this machine learning aspect you're talking about, that we don't really code the machine, it actually learns. So we give it lots and lots of data. That's the fuel for AI. And we give it what we call a ground truth, which is rules on how to make decisions. Then every time it tries something new, it's like a three-year-old kid. It tries to look for patterns, the data, commonalities, and then try to answer questions, queries, or like that. So it tries to do stuff. And you have people working with it to kind of train it and say, oh, okay, this was right, this was wrong. This was partially right, you forgot this piece. But the machine learns and learns. And so it goes from like three-year-old to PhD in a few weeks, where it's able to do some of these low-level tasks on its own. That's one piece, machine learning. The second is the ability to actually understand natural language, which for machines is very hard. You think about the way that we talk, we use so much slang and jargon and all these things. Like if I told you guys, hey, you know what? I'm feeling blue because it's raining cats and dogs. Most people will probably get that, okay, hey, Neil's sad because you know it's raining a lot. You tell that to a machine, what does the machine think? 
right? Like somehow Neil is physically the color blue because small animals are flying from the sky. Uh, that doesn't compute. Yeah. So, yeah, so for AI to understand natural language is a big piece of this because it's not looking at the words themselves. It's not looking at keywords. It's not taking things literally. It's trying to draw context from the conversation. It's trying to get, understand intent rather than actual words, much like we do. And some AIs, if they have the ability to see and they've been taught body language, can also pick up those nonverbal cues. So big, big, big challenge, but that's the second piece of AI. Third piece is just the ability to interact as another person. You think about like, you know, the Amazon Alexa or Siri or Pixel or Bixby, all these guys, right? They're very good at straight commands. Like if I told Alexa, hey, Alexa, turn off the lights, it'll turn off the lights. If I say dim the lights, hey, Alexa, dim the lights, it'll dim the lights. But if I said, hey, Alexa, it sure is bright in here, it has no idea what I'm talking about, right? And so there's part of the natural language, but let's say that I ask Alexa to dim the lights and it dims it too much, I might come back and say, well, hey, uh, hey, Alexa, that's too much, raise it up. It's not going to actually remember what we were talking about. It doesn't persist that. With AI is actually persisting the conversation, remembers the context of the whole conversation. So it's like talking to like a good friend of yours, just a little back and forth banter to get what you might need. Sure. And um, in your book, you also talk about narrow AI and general AI. Can you explain what this differentiation is for some of our listeners? Yeah, it, and that's a, it's probably a really important point because everything we have today is called ANI, artificial narrow intelligence, meaning basically the machine can only do what we've taught it to do. It cannot do anything else. It doesn't think for itself. And so if you create an AI that can try and detect lung cancer from an X-ray, that's the only thing it can do. It doesn't try and say, hey, I wonder if I can figure out how to detect, you know, other forms of cancer or maybe look at, you know, bones, the, the bone density. It, it just doesn't have the capability unless a person teaches that the AI that other skill set. AGI, artificial general intelligence, is where the machines can actually think for themselves, where they'll decide that maybe they want to expand upon their knowledge and say, hey, I want to learn these other skill sets. So you have like, you know, DeepMind's AlphaGo, knows the game of Go, might decide itself, you know what, I don't want to play chess, I want to play, we'll learn to play poker, and it'll teach itself how to do that. Today, I can tell you that AGI does not exist anywhere. And... You know, it's a great debate in the AI field about will we ever actually get there? Are we 10 years away? Are we 50? Are we infinite years away? We don't know yet. But I know a lot of smart guys are trying to figure out this, a path to see if it's even possible. We have looked at what AI is, but what are the different uses and applications of AI that you see in the legal industry? Well, there's, there's a lot going on. And for legal industry, I, I chunk it up into three areas. So one is policy, regulation, legislation, which you know everyone talks about, that we know these changes are coming. Uh, what are the things we have to put in place to you know, safeguard society, make sure we're using things for good lawful purposes? The second is actually legal operations. So much like you know, any enterprise, these are AI as a tool set. And so we can hopefully use AI to do things faster, cheaper, less errors. 
The third, though, is one that doesn't get a whole lot of attention, at least not yet, which is really the future of the legal profession. So what, are, what is AI going to mean in terms of, am I going to have to you know, argue a case in front of like an AI robot judge? Um, if some of these low-level things are getting automated, like, you know, there's an AI now through legalmation that can read discovery information and generate interrogatories, deposition questions, those types of things, and what are the skills and knowledge that uh, law students, you know, and early career lawyers are going to need? Because what work are they actually going to be working on? And then you look at something like there was a case about a couple of years ago where there was, a, I can't remember if it's a murder or homicide, the only quote-unquote people in the room were the victim, the killer, and Alexa. And the prosecutor decided to call Alexa's memory basically as a witness, you know, want to put it, put it into evidence. And there was another hotly contested thing, but it was ultimately a rule that, yes, you can do that. So now if you're the defense attorney, you're going like, well, how in the world do I cross-examine Alexa, right? How do I, how do, I do that? So this whole prof how the profession is going to change is like the, the third big wheel for the legal industry. Sure. And I've heard you speak about the legal mation case with Walmart as well, where the AI was able to help out in the litigation. Would you mind going into that a bit as well, please? Uh, sure, because it's, it's an interesting case. Um, basically, there was someone that filed a claim against Walmart. They bought a whole chicken and they bit into the gizzard. Um, Apparently, there was a stone in there, and they broke their tooth. And I think, interestingly enough, the guy was a dentist. And so normally, Walmart will probably just pay some damages, not worry about the, the you know, not want to pay the legal costs, the court costs. But because now they're using LegalMation's AI, it went through the AI system. And, you know, it came back to all its work. But one of the things it kind of pointed out said that, you know, it's actually a well-known fact that when chickens eat, they eat stones, and the stones gets stored in the gizzard. So by buying a whole chicken, the, you know, the person that got injured should have been aware of this material fact, unless Walmart is not actually liable. So Walmart actually, and their lawyers actually looked at that and actually used it as the basis for their case and wound up winning as a result, right? And then was like, wow, this is amazing. How in the world did they know that? Because to be honest, most lawyers, unless they were farmers, wouldn't have known that. They actually went through all the training and all these things. There's nothing about chickens or gizzards or stones. It's actually something the AI was able to piece together with its research. So, you know, that's one of the powers of AI to look upon millions and millions of different data points and actually see those hidden patterns that are not so obvious to us as people. Absolutely, and unfortunately, I don't have that uh, exciting uh, stories to tell, like like the chicken uh, one. Um, but when we look at that, at, at Linklaters and, and how we um, we're using AI really in now, so not in future, but now, uh, I, I would say that we have three areas. The one is due diligence, where we're looking at companies or contracts and uh, and scroll to uh, yeah, plenty, hundreds, thousands of contracts and yeah, identify the risk. And uh, there we extract information, put that in, into Excel sheets, and then compare the the results and see whether any risk in these contracts is is is, is yeah is, is is up and running, and uh, whether we need to address that in the 
in the in the relevant transaction. So that's the, the entire due diligence exercise. A second area is using AI and, and, and the related software for as a filter where yeah, the clients are getting in contracts which are quite standardized but vary from, from time to time, for example, um, a purchase contract. And then you want to check whether the one you get from the other side, whether that is actually to your standard and to your benchmark, uh, it, it, it fits into your risk profile which you have uh, as a company identified. And that kind of filter could be done as a first uh, uh, step by an AI solution before then the human being is looking at the crucial points which pop up, uh, which need to be discussed, uh, escalated, and actually negotiated. And then the last point is more internal uh, for, for, for legal research and, and, and actually data which we have in our firm where you have specific questions to transaction types, to clients, to, uh, to finance uh, profiles and so on. And then the, the, the software is actually then um, attracting and, 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 and bringing down and pulling together that, that information on, on the research side. So there we're looking at the, the know-how uh, in order then to provide the, the relevant advice to, to our client. Sure, that's great. And I think you both touched on this previously, but in order for AI to work, it needs to be fed data. And one danger is that it could adopt the biases of the data or the person that is training it. So there was an example of Google trying to create a hate speech detector using Google Brain, but they realized that the hate speech detector was probably racist itself. So is cognitive bias a danger or something to look out for when developing AI, you know, especially in the legal industry where the repercussions such as access to justice could be huge? Well, the, the simple answer is yes. Um, it's, it's a huge concern. Not just the cognitive bias, but implicit bias, those, those hidden biases we each have um, that influence without us realizing some of the decisions that we make. You know, talking about the United Nations, one of the big things they're really interested in is actually having like robot judges. So having like these AI robot judges to improve access to justice, reduce corruption in systems. But while well, there's a ton of data out there, like you look at the, the US judicial system, court system, if we just fed the AI all these court cases, what would the AI actually learn? I mean, we know that unfortunately, some people get harsher sentences because of their ethnicity and some people have gotten lighter sentences because of their ethnicity, right? The, the AI is gonna look at some of these things and say, they're about the same age, same occupation, same crime. We're going to start looking for what are the differences to justify different um, sentencing. And that's going to be one of the things I, it's going to learn that it must be, you know, ethnicity. Or it might be gender or it might be something else like, you know, zip code or how much money you make. And we, we obviously we don't want that. That's not providing fair and equal justice. And so there's a big push across a lot of the organizations, the companies to say, okay, how can we minimize bias? How can we actually identify it? Because it, it's so difficult to see that. And um, it's something I think a lot of people are working on, but there's no quick or easy answer to this one. It's just something that we as people have to be cognizant of and try and safeguard against. 
and and from the to, just to add on on from, from a the practical view uh, when when we are looking at using AI, I think the first challenge is do we have enough data points and, and what is the quality of the data? So uh, not so much the, the, the bias, but that comes on top of that. But is our uh, data sufficient and, and actually then uh, for, for, for the purpose and actually bringing up these, the, the, the results? So it's really that kind of formula, uh, rubbish in, rubbish out, in respect of the data. And uh, that is not only the data quality, so the data points, but also then the bias which, uh, which Neil has just outlined. Sure. And um, in a Thomson Reuters Legal Executive Institute article um, looking at how AI is disrupting the functions of lawyers, it was said that at the heart of it, lawyers bring four key things to the table, and that is information, labor, prediction and judgment. And I often hear lawyers say that, you know, their judgment is never going to be impacted by AI tools. So I wanted to get both of your perspectives on how AI is impacting or will impact these four key areas, information, labor, prediction and judgment. It's an interesting uh, question. I think AI is going to bring a lot more information to the table. Um, some of the things that I know that are actively being worked on or some cases uses is just even things like on jury selection. Did I learn more about these people, like through social media and stuff like that, rather than have a bunch of people comb through it? Can you use like the psychological, oh, sorry, psychographic profiling capabilities of artificial intelligence, basically mapping what they might post, tweet, things like that, on, on based on real psychology to the 56 personality traits? Because if you can do that, not only might that help you you know, do better with the jury selection, but most will also help you understand what arguments or even word choices will resonate better in that juror group. So definitely will bring more information to the table. Uh, labor, I, I think, is going to probably be transformed by these tools. Some of the things that I think that as an associate lawyer you do, like, you know, your first four to six years is going to change because some of that work will be shifted or automated to AI solutions. And so the question becomes now, what does that mean? So it might be that in terms of labor, you're gonna spend more time with the client, or maybe you'll do more time doing like business development or be trying to be a rainmaker. So it's not that, well, suddenly we just need less lawyers. It's just the nature of the work is gonna to shift to something else that's probably gonna be more complex and more value added. Judgment, well, the hope is always that, you know, more information, more insight will lead to better decisions, hopefully better judgment. Um, I think that hopefully will be true for lawyers and judges. Again, not saying that they have bad judgment or anything like that, but I think we all know that the, the more solid information, good information that we actually have, then we feel better about making a sound decision. And then the, the last one, I can't remember. Not to remind it was me. Uh, prediction. Prediction. That, that's an interesting one because <laughs> um, I actually know that some law firms already use some deep analytics tools to even predict things like what, uh, what arguments or when to object or uh, were they given a predict particular judge based on their past rulings. Um, I, again, I, I think that it's not like AI is going to replace prediction for lawyers, but again, I think 
given the, the more information, the other tool sets, again, I think the lawyers will actually have just more or better, I should really say better information to try and make better predictions. So a lot of this work is still going to be on, on lawyers. I think it's just that they're going to have uh, some new tools that will hopefully provide even more better information for them. And I, I completely agree with that. So it, AI is, there's not the danger that AI is taking over entirely the role of the, the lawyer, and particularly when you look at, 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 at a judgment, because in the end, clients want to have a person uh, telling you the view which you have formed. And I think the, 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 the forming that view, that opinion in which way you want to go in a certain scenario, negotiation, taking some risks, and, and so on. And so exactly in that kind of scenario, it's based on better information, as Neil has outlined, and uh, a, f a complete set of, of information. And for example, we have done here at Linklaters, we have done a, a due diligence exercise um, with various AI tools and also uh, old school with uh, trainees going into a data room and looking at various contracts. And there we found that uh, not surprisingly, the AI tools were the most uh, precise uh, um, uh, work workforce compared to to the trainees. So clearly, uh, we get better better information, and on better information, we will um, come to uh, I would think to 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 better better, better judgments and. On prediction, we are using, in particular in the, the litigation area, we're using tools to help us statistically um, on uh, certain fact patterns or a constellation of persons having being in contact and then visualizing that and then uh, applying AI in order then to find out oh, what are the potential that there is some wrongdoing, for example, if there's um, uh, money laundering or, or some other suspicious uh, transactions. So there, it is clearly something which you, with your normal brain, you can't digest because it's so much information and you can't make these kind of uh, connections in order to, to actually find or predict, oh, there may be something dodgy which you need to look at in an organization, for example. Sure. So um, I guess the summary is that when looking at to what extent AI can disrupt the lawyer's role, it would be more of an augmenting rather than a replacing of a lawyer's skills. To what extent do young and aspiring lawyers need to develop a new set of skills in that kind of an environment? And what advice would you give them? Well, that's the, the billion dollar question as everyone tries to figure out what's the future of work. And uh, I can tell you from what I'm seeing and what we think is going to happen in your future. Um, there's there's two big things that are going to help you know law students, aspiring lawyers. And that one is the development of really good interpersonal skills. I there's there's very much a general consensus that you know with all these you know like AI tools coming out, it's actually going to enable lawyers to spend more time with their clients which is, you know, something clients say, and they might be managing a larger, like, caseload. So, so maybe working three, four cases, they may be working eight cases because of the efficiencies, which means that, you know, the communication, the building of relationships, you know, collaboration, teamwork are going to become even more critical skills in, in performing law. The uh, second one is 
I think really understanding some of the foundational concepts or at least how things work operationally when it comes to AI or other emerging technology. Uh, not, not so much because they need to be experts or anything like that, but because that you just probably see more and more cases that's going to involve something like this. Like, you know, I, I referenced the Alexa case before, but, you know, in the future, what happens if there's an accident with a self-driving vehicle and, you know, a person, another car, another self-driving vehicle, how do you establish liability, fault, these other things? And so just having that foundational knowledge of how these technologies work is going to be just, you know, a core piece of knowledge that I think not just lawyers are going to need to know, but just a lot of people in general are going to have to understand. Yeah, and, and, and from, from my end here, uh, it's, I think, exactly this, this last point, which we at Link Ledgers are, are, are promoting. So we have established uh, across our, our, our firm um, a, a coding course for lawyers, which doesn't make them kind of IT specialists, but to understand how that um, world is working, how that world is, is thinking, because in the end, you need to, to understand what is possible, what is not possible, and you need to interpret the, the results of that. And then based on that, on these new tools, um, give, provide the, uh, advice to the client and then provide a, a judgment. So it's key to understand what the, the new tools are, are able to, 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 to do and, and, and assist you in, in, your, in, in, in your, your, your lawyer's work. Sure. So we talked about um, how AI can be used in the legal industry and we talked about some of the changes that that will bring and how young lawyers and the students who are looking to come into the industry can adapt to that. I also wanted to go into what the legal industry challenges are for realising the potential of AI. Well, that, that's an interesting question. Um... Because I think that the challenges are more people-oriented than technology-oriented. Um, most people just don't like change. And, you know, and it's tough to say, why should we do some of these things when nothing is technically broken, right? The, the law firms, the lawyers, they're doing a great job. They're making good money. So why would they have to change? And ironically, some of this change that is occurring is actually being driven on the client side because they're putting more pressure on, you know, legal costs. Like, you know, they, they don't want billable hours anymore. They want fixed costs. You know, there's certain things they will no longer pay for. And so it's forcing law, law firms at least to look at more efficiencies. Um, the other thing is, I think there's a, a trust factor in the technology that's not, not quite there yet, that for a lot of people, it's difficult to believe that not only could a machine do some of these things, but might be able to do it as well as or better than a person could. Uh, you know, we're talking about like legalmation, they, you know, when they were first pushing out their solution, you know, companies like Walmart were very interested, but they had uh, some challenges with law firms initially trying to get interested in because they're looking like, why should we do this, right? You know, even if this works, why would this work better than what a person can do? And if it, I believe you and say it does that, how do I build this, right? I have an associate lawyer that's building six to 12 hours for this type of work. What do I build if the AI does it? And so a lot of the challenges that currently exist are because, you know, the, the mindset 
you know, the say like why change something that's not broken, the trust factor, as well as you know, this doesn't fit my my revenue model or my business model. But one thing we've learned throughout history is that change is the only constant in life, and it's adapt and overcome or you die. And so you're, I'm trying to see a lot of the law firms, even the big mega firms, the smart ones are already actively trying to embrace this, not just because of client pressure, but they realize that things are going to change. They would rather be the driver of the change than just be the passenger. And I couldn't, couldn't agree more with, with that statement um, because in, in the end, yeah, it, it is the, the clients are forcing that. But with AI, as we've discussed before, there are huge opportunities to, to come up with completely new legal products uh, which you can design around that technology and you can be much more, more precise with that. There is a whole kind of, yeah, you need to manage that change and there are obstacles within in the firms but I see that as a as an opportunity for the entire industry and for each firm to find new products uh, and embrace that that change as, as, as the industry or the legal industry has done in the, the last century. Now to the final question that we'll ask of all of our speakers throughout the series and that is can you tell us the name of a book that changed your perspective in a big way and that would be useful for our listeners and it doesn't have to be law related it's 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 interesting because it's, it's definitely not a law it's not definitely not an educational book but uh one book that really did change my perspective was dune by frank herbert you know it's a science fiction book that you're not familiar with that i think came out in the, the 60s but the the book actually, while it tells the story, is actually a thinly veiled allegory about politics, environment, influence, and all these other factors. And there's there's elements about how you know technology can sh- shifting some of these things. But you know, you think about people, process, technology. The one thing that you know I, I really learned from Dune is that people are the biggest thing. Right, the technology will understand better, it'll mature, process, similar type of thing. But it doesn't matter how good a technology you have, how awesome your processes are, if you can't get people on board, if you can't help them understand the value and buy into something, it never really is going to go anywhere. And you know, that my biggest takeaway from that is that the product or service you're trying to do isn't actually sufficient. It doesn't matter how awesome you are at being a lawyer or being a doctor or anything like that, if, if people don't, you know, trust you, believe in you, or you can't convince them to buy into what you're proposing, you're not really going to go anywhere. So I would definitely go with Dune as a very influential book and perspective changer for me. And the, for me, it, it is a yeah, not not directly law related, but uh, I'm, I'm a financial lawyer. I'm, I'm coming out of the, the derivative space, and the financial crisis is is yeah, we have overcome that. But uh, there's one book, The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine, from Michael Lewis uh, from the, the 29 uh, from 2010, I think, um, and that is describing very colourful uh, the build up to the crisis, and it shows uh, how that entire financial market is. Is functioning and, 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 and how the various kind of, of, of hedge fund managers and, 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 and the, the kind of the financial industry is, is working. And you learn a lot when you're reading that, oh, this, this can't be true, but it's a non-fictional uh, book in the end. So, uh, and you learn quite a lot of what uh, is now the, the result of that, the crisis, and then the aftermath there. And 
if you don't want to read it, there's also a film, The Big Short, uh, with uh, Brad Pitt, easy to uh, to digest. <laughs> yeah, a good shortcut. Thanks for the book recommendations. And also, it's been an honor having you both on the show. And thanks for taking the time. Hey, my pleasure. I hope this was fun, useful. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks a lot from me as well.